the Hypermobility Happy Hour podcast, the first podcast exclusively dedicated to discussing hypermobility conditions, including hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. On this podcast, we like to explore different perspectives on connective tissue conditions and what we can do to treat our symptoms to live more fulfilling lives. Just a friendly reminder that this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only, not for medical advice. On this episode, I'm very excited to be speaking with Dr. Angelina Vera, a fellowship-trained orthopedic surgeon who specializes in sports medicine, arthroscopy, and the treatment of injuries to the shoulder, hip, knee, and ankle. Her practice is located in the Las Vegas, Summerlin, and Henderson areas of Nevada. She has a particular interest in hip pathology, anatomic variances, and genetics as they relate to dancers, and she has a focus on the prevention and management of sports and dance-related injuries. Dr. Vera has conducted some very interesting research, which she has presented at multiple national and international conferences. She is also the author of several peer-reviewed publications. Dr. Vera, hello, and welcome to the Hypermobility Happy Hour. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Great. I'm so excited um, to be chatting with you. Let's start uh, kind of back at the beginning for your hypermobile journey. Um, how did you first become interested and aware of hypermobility conditions? Yeah, I think the first uh, time I really actually knew what hypermobility was was actually in medical school. So I, we learned about Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and in medical school. It was a very brief kind of um, thing that uh, we talked about. and But in investigating it, you know, I saw a lot of... Um, familiar things that I kind of related with. And so um, I got a little bit more interested in it. And then as I um, got into residency, into orthopedic residency, I got interested um, even more into it as I started trying to develop a um, a research study on dancers and the relation of dancers and hypermobility. So that was kind of my journey and my first uh, interest in it. That's very interesting and similar to what I've heard from a lot of um, medical providers that they sort of get a little bit of an intro in their education, um, but not kind of the whole story that you kind of have to <laughs> together the um, the larger story. And, and you've done an, an amazing job of kind of following up on that interest. Um, and one of your primary areas of um, focus is the prevention of injuries that occur in dancers, um, which, as I guess a lot of us know, are you know are very are tend to be a, a more hypermobile um, or have you know more hypermobile people represented than um, you know maybe other yes. sports or um, the general population. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, what are your observations from studying the prevention of dance-related injuries, and is there any kind of general, um, uh, you know, observations or techniques that you find helpful for many dancers, particularly hypermobile ones? Yeah. So uh, not all dancers are necessarily hypermobile, but there is definitely a larger percentage of them that are. And it's one of the things that makes them good at what they do. And that's the same for, for gymnasts or figure skaters and that sort of thing. So um, they, uh, there are some kind of uh, general things that we have found that, they can do to kind of help uh, prevent injuries. And one of them is really um, working on hip and core strength. So uh, abdominal muscles, uh, 
gluteal muscles and that sort of thing to really help um, stabilize the core. We have found that there are a lot of dancers um, that have um, hip dysplasia or a uh, at least borderline hip dysplasia, which is just a uh, essentially a shallow hip socket, allowing for more motion in the hip. When you combine that with ligaments that are, are more lax, uh, then you have kind of this extra mobility in the hip that um, the muscles have to take up um, and to keep those those joints stable. So keeping the, the glute muscles and the core muscles strong are really, really important, uh, especially for, for dancers and, and flexibility athletes in general. Uh, and then um, proprioception. Uh, a lot of proprioception stuff. So you think, you know, dancers have really good balance, but I think there's still an element of proprioception that we miss in, in dance class that they can really work on as a, as a cross training sort of thing. And um, so I think one of the really important things that I have been trying to, or at least tried to do through my research was to express the importance to dancers of the need for cross training and cross training, not being doing ballet, jazz and tap, but cross training being doing, you know, you're dancing and then doing either Pilates or some other kind of conditioning program, um, especially aerobic exercise is really important for um, increasing stamina because we just don't get that stamina just from taking dance class in our two or three minute intervals that we do. So uh, those are, are really kind of the the big points that I would have for dancers and especially hypermobile um, athletes in general. Yeah. And that's a great overview. Um, and, you know, the strength thing can be so difficult for um, some of us to come by, I guess, you know, whether sort of in the athletic sense or just trying to get through day to day. And you mentioned um, Pilates, which, you know, a lot of people really benefit from, and there's some, um, you know, great instructors out there who work with, hypermobile patients. Um, but are there other, um, you know, types of that kind of endurance building that you see being successful, like swimming or other things like that? Or do you find it's really more kind of individualized? Yeah, so I I do think an aerobic component of some sort is really, um, is really important, whether that's, you know, swimming, or getting on the bike, I, I really a lot of times recommend my patients get um, into cycling, whether that's on the road or on a stationary bike, because it's just so much less impact on the joints, but still really good aerobic exercise, as well as um, getting the range of motion in the hips and the knees and the ankles as well um, while you're doing it. And so that or any kind of low impact. So elliptical um, is also another um, good aerobic thing. But I think a lot of um, dancers in particular kind of miss that aspect of kind of cross training and, and kind of overall, um, musculoskeletal health and wellness. Yeah, absolutely. And certainly, um, you know, for the general population of hypermobile people too, it can be really hard to find something that's challenging and interesting, um, and allows you to keep building, especially if you're dealing with, um, you know, pot symptoms or some of the other kind of complications that come yeah. in. Um, so that's some, you know, very important perspective. And then you also mentioned proprioception, which, um, you know, we've talked a lot about on this podcast before, <laughs> certainly a huge issue um, for many people with um, hypermobility conditions. And, 
you know, there's a lot of different approaches, like there's those balance boards or, you know, exercises where you um, close your eyes and, and try to yep. do things. Have you found specific kind of proprioceptive techniques that you found, you know, resonated with the patients that you work with? Or again, just really more, you know, person to person and their specific like symptoms and complications? Yeah. So, um, the, uh, the things that I have found that uh, I think are a little bit more challenging and maybe a little bit more interesting to people, especially w when I've looked at uh, the, the dancers, is having them do some of the things that they do on a regular basis with their eyes closed um, and then on an unstable surface. So, and that goes for any person, you know, the athlete or not, um, just doing kind of their standing, just standing on one leg, how you normally stand on the ground and then just try and close your eyes and see how you balance and, and then add in um, other unstable surfaces, whether that's a foam mat or some kind of BOSU ball or something like that, I think is, is, is interesting to people in the sense that they're doing just some regular thing, but they're I'm making it harder for them. And um, for athletes in particular, you can, you can, you know, customize that to doing something that is familiar to them. For instance, in dance, doing a passe or um, whether it's turned out or turned in and, and, and adding those elements of instability to really help with the proprioception. That's fascinating. And um, yeah, again, just such an important thing that's kind of starting to get more um, interest and traction um, and sort of more general awareness of this, this kind of six of proprioception and it was funny I was just saying the other day like it's too bad about the movie The Sixth Sense because I think that's kind of like it's just it was such a cultural phenomenon that when people think of The Sixth Sense that's what kind of comes to mind and yet um, proprioception you know definitely is is a very important sense and something that you know a lot of us um, with hypermobile conditions seem to struggle with. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, kind of going back to the endurance thing, I think one of the nice things about like, um, uh, cycling and, and, and stationary bike is that it kind of takes that, that danger out of that area as well. So like if you're a lot of people like to go for a run, but that, that requires actually quite a bit of proprioception. You know, what is the, the turf that you're running on and, you know, what kind of obstacles are you going through? And I guess if you're on a treadmill, it's, it's maybe a little bit different, but um, I think that, you know, if you're clicked into a, an, into a bike, whether it's a, uh, stationary bike or not, and it gives you a little bit more stability and kind of, we can really focus on one thing at a time working on your endurance. So I think that's really good, a really good activity for uh, the hypermobile individual struggling with that. Yeah, definitely. And it's something I wish I had, you know, kind of learned about sooner because by the time I, like I was trying um, some kind of bike exercises last summer and they were just pinching my hip just so badly. And I wish I had kind of, like I, I told my physical therapist, but it really kind of um, knocked me back. But I realized that like water, even water walking, like, you know, swimming mm -hmm. to the extent possible, like just finding those alternatives that um, work for people wherever they're at in their, you know, journey with these things. Or raising or lowering the seat on the bicycle and that sort mm -hmm. of thing. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. And again, like a great testament to the importance of wherever possible working with someone who's, you know, knowledgeable about these conditions because um, they can, you know, they can certainly have these like kind of complicating factors that can make something that, 
you know, should be rather simple, um, you know, a, a little bit more challenging. Right. Um, and we, so we've talked a little bit about the hip, but you have a particular interest in the hip joint. Um, and so to make sure we're all on the same page, um, could you give us a little bit of an overview about how the hip joint ideally functions and the issues that you tend to see um, most commonly in people with hypermobility conditions? Yeah, so the, the hip joint uh, basic level is a ball and socket joint, um, and it's uh, very similar in regards to the shoulder. However, it's, it's much more constrained. So I talked a little bit about um, dysplasia, and so there's certain variations to the anatomy um, of the hip joint. And, and the hip joint is actually, we've come to realize, much more complex than we um, initially thought, especially as orthopedic surgeons. Um, so there's, um, because we are, you know, three-dimensional structures, the um, complexity of this joint can, can really um, be a, a little mind-boggling sometimes. But essentially, the acetabulum is the socket, and the ball is the femoral head. And, and it, it should be you know, a, a joint where you can flex and extend and abduct and adduct and, and rotate. And, but what I found in, especially in hypermobile people is, um, they get a lot of abductor fatigue and then also they get a hip impingement. And when you, um, get a person that has excessive laxity in their soft tissues, they can attain more range of motion in, in all their joints, but in the hip in particular, and they end up, what happens is they end up impinging that femoral, uh, femoral side of the joint with the acetabular side or the ball and socket side. And those two bones end up hitting up against each other. And, um, when they do that, they actually pinch this, uh, kind of ring of cartilage that's around the acetabulum. It's very much like a, uh, a gasket and it helps to stabilize the joint as well. And so that ends up, if you have that extra impingement that tears the labrum, and then that adds an element of instability to the hip as well. So we know that on the acetabulum, that labrum that surrounds uh, the femoral head gives a, a suction seal to that joint and really gives quite a bit of stability to the hip in addition to the capsule or the uh, soft tissues and ligaments that surround the hip and really keep it together. So there's, there's multiple elements to the stability of the hip joint, um, one being the bone, uh, the other being the labrum, and uh, another one being the ligaments. And then lastly, we have, of course, the, the muscles. And so what happens is when you have a hypermobile person who has lost, you know, at least two of those three main stabilizers, their muscles are what become the main stabilizer for their for their joint and that that's really the abductor muscles the, the glute muscles and those get uh, fatigued because you know your everyday life you're standing and sitting and walking and and moving and so they they get really fatigued and I, so I think that's a particularly important um, thing for uh, people with hypermobile uh, conditions and then when you add on to that, um, that there is an element of, or I should say a subset of hypermobile people that are, have some hip dysplasia. And like I mentioned before, hip dysplasia is where the, the socket or that acetabulum is shallower than normal or than it should be again, allowing for more motion. So you lose some of that bony stability that's inherent to the hip joint. 
add on all the soft tissue issues as well. And then you have kind of this perfect storm of, uh, of hip problems and hip pain and, and weakness. And, and that will really require a lot of, um, physical therapy, um, and possibly surgery down the line. But, you know, that's kind of, um, the whole story and kind of the basis around the hip joint. Yeah. And I think the way you put it, the perfect storm, um, just really resonates as someone who's had two, um, labral tear repairs. Um, it's definitely, Mm -hmm. it, it's, it is a very complex joint and the way you explained it makes sense that, you know, the muscles end up picking up this slack, Um, and then they get really fatigued and that, you know, really can hinder your ability to do a lot of things because those are kind of core muscles involved in even sitting or, you know, even things that, you know, are relative should, you know, are seem like they're relatively easy. It can certainly become complicated when you don't have that stability. And, um, you know, as someone having gone through those, like those procedures and having, having, um, you know, torn labrum and the, um, I think, what is it called? A, um, synovial herniation pit. Like, uh-huh. um, I, you know, I, I really wish I had learned, you know, from a younger age, like how to preserve the hip and how to take care of it. Yeah. Um, because really uh, like, uh, you know, a stitch in time saves nine. It's kind of like a, you know, trite expression, but, um, that seems very true when it comes to the hip and it's, it seems you know, to someone not educated in medical, the medical field, you know, like you, it seems like it should be such a stable joint and like that it would, you know, it's just so big and, you know, like compared to the shoulder or something. Um, but you know, there's also that much more load on it and that much more, um, you know, kind of potential issues. So, um, yeah, it's definitely, you know, a really important joint. And I've heard, um, some of the other guests interviewed have mentioned that, um, one of the things that can really contribute to hip stability is ankle stabi- instability or instabilities, you know, further down the chain. Um, is that something that you see, like where the ankle is unstable and so the hip is picking up the slack or, you know, ankle sort of issues refer yeah. to the hip in a painful way? Or it, that's, It's really hard to tease that out because it's like what comes first, the chicken or the egg? You don't know if it's the hip issue that caused the ankle issue because the, the body's this kinetic chain. And so it's always really quite difficult to figure out what's, what's the driving factor. And so you just kind of have to, to go step by step. And really one of the reasons why as, as physicians we try and focus on one issue is because once we that kind of helps guide us to what is the main issue and what is really causing so uh, causing all of the problems if there's kind of this multitude of issues going on so um yeah i mean the um it's definitely possible that that the way you walk your your feet um and the pronation or supination that you experience in your feet definitely affects your knees, which can certainly affect your hips as well. And, and the way you walk is, um, it, it is really paramount to your hips as well. And it can be either driven by your hips or, um, or if you're affecting your hips. So it's kind of, again, what's coming first, that, that chicken or that egg, it's hard to say. Yeah, and that, and that's a great point that it can be so hard to tease out um, some of these issues because I, I would assume, and although may, please correct me if I'm wrong, I would assume that the nerves that are sort of carrying up 
the signals from let's say the ankle or the knee are shared like that they run through the hip area too so like if you're having you know pain in your hips you know is it possible that that could be like i said you know like the hips are actually hurting but you know maybe it's the knee or the ankle that's kind of you know wonky or unstable and then that's what's causing it or there's maybe even pain in those areas but because the hip is such a big area that it's interpreted as you know you feel it as hip pain when it's you know maybe involves multiple joints does that yeah so the the nerves actually don't work that way so if it it can be kind of the other way. So we do know that if you have impingement on a nerve in your back, you can get referred pain down the line, but it really doesn't work in reverse. So um, it, just in the way that the the nerve, um, we know that the, the nerves function. Um, so um, yes, so you, you can definitely get, um, say like a pinched nerve in your back that can be causing your hip pain or even pain down your thigh or even down into your ankle. Um, and that's just one of those other things that can complicate kind of the diagnosis of, of, of injuries and, and extremity uh, pain is, you know, is there a, a, a problem with the spine? Is there something pinching on a nerve that's causing this pain in the hip? And that's one of the reasons why it can be so complex in the hip in particular, because if you have a pinched nerve in your back and it's causing pain that's radiating down your leg and into your knee and down into your ankle, then we know just that kind of um, pattern by that pattern that um, you're likely your pain's probably coming from your back. Whereas if, you know, closer to the back, it's a little bit harder. So yeah, you have pain in your hip. So is that coming from the hip? Is it coming from the abductors? Is it coming from some trope bursitis? Is it coming from um, a pinched nerve in your, your back? Or is it um, issue femoral impingement? And so, or is it coming from the groin, whether it's genital urinary or um, that sort of thing? So it's definitely um, can work from proximal to distal, but usually not in the reverse with the, um, in the way that the, the nerves work. Interesting. That's really good to know. And yeah, it's, it's so hard teasing these things out, especially as a, um, you know, medical lay person, because it's like, <laughs> it's just, it can be a really kind of, you know, strange and disorienting experience to, you know, have, you know, pain in one place, but to be able to recognize like, maybe just because you're feeling it in that place, it's possible that it, you know, can be coming from, like you said, the back or so much in that area, the SI joint, you know, like you said, there's just, there's really a lot going on there. So, um, and it, like, it really is, it's a testament to how difficult this can be to tease out, okay, what exactly is the problem and then what's the best way to address it. And speaking of which, Um, you have a number of specialties when it comes to the hip. Um, could you give us just a, a brief overview of the different treatment approaches to hip dysfunction and pain and injury? Um, like, for example, can you explain the difference between a hip labral repair and actual like hip cartilage reconstruction? Yeah, so we talked a little bit already about the um, hip impingement, which can cause labral tears. And so um, one of the uh, things that I like to... Um, 
do and specialize in is hip arthroscopy. And that's where we use minimally invasive techniques to get into the hip joint. Uh, we can see the cartilage and the labrum and we can repair the labrum uh, typically with anchors into the bone with suture around or through the labrum to reattach it to the bone. And during that time, while we're in there, we address any kind of bony pathology. I mentioned the impingement. We can use um, different um, tools to um, reshape the bone and to get rid of the impingement, essentially either whether it's coming from the the cup side or the acetabulum or the ball side, the, the femur. And uh, we use, a lot of times we use x-ray to make sure that we're getting things correct and, and getting enough um, of a resection to, to get that properly um, freed up, so to speak. And then um, when uh, a lot of times in a kind of a revision setting, so somebody who's had a labral repair and they've torn it again, or in the setting where their labrum has just uh, kind of been deteriorated so bad that it's not repairable, or sometimes it even becomes calcified and becomes like bone and it's not really functioning because it's not giving you that suction seal. So we'll resect it. And then we can do what we call a labral reconstruction where we use a, a tissue from either a donor or the patient themselves and reconstruct that labrum in a similar fashion that we repair it, but um, providing new tissue in there. We can also do um, segmental labral reconstructions and that sort of thing. And then when we uh, consider kind of cartilage procedures, those are uh, quite a bit different in the sense that um, we can do, there's a little, we're a little bit more limited in the hip just because the amount of space that we can get in there from an arthroscopic standpoint, um, distracting the hip with the, the tools that we have, uh, getting in there with instruments can be a little bit difficult. So we can do things like like biocartilage and using uh, cartilage um, allograft in, in small pieces and put that down in any cartilage defects that we find. Uh, that's a possibility kind of on the, the femoral or the acetabular side. And then, um, you know, we, there's also open procedures that we can do for the hip. I mentioned dysplasia and, and hip dysplasia. Sometimes it's so severe that we have to actually do what we call a periacetabular osteotomy where we cut, we make three cuts in the pelvis and we actually reorient the acetabulum. And um, a lot of times at the same time, we'll do a hip arthroscopy and repair all the soft tissue and uh, as well. Um, but that's kind of you know, on kind of the farther extreme, as well as, you know, once you get past the point where we can't do those hip preservation procedures, we have, of course, hip replacements, but that's kind of the whole spectrum of, of, of hip surgery in, in the sense, in the musculoskeletal sense, and, and how we uh, kind of go ahead and, and treat them from a surgical side. Yeah, and thanks for that overview. That's, um, that's, it's really helpful, and because this is certainly a big issue for a lot of people. Um, do you have any sort of insights or have you found anything that helps with scar healing after these kind of procedures? Um, I'm curious, I, I personally, having gone through the labral tear repairs now years ago, uh, my scars will still itch and burn from time to time, which I yeah. suspect is more related to the mast cell, you know, tryptosemia sort of side of things. But again, layperson don't know. Um, but are there products or approaches that you found that seem to help with scar wound healing or again, person to person, hard to say. Yeah. So, um, so from a, like going deeper kind of into the, the hip joint itself, we know that one of the reasons that hip 
arthroscopies or labral repairs will fail is because of adhesions within the joint. And so um, to help prevent those, uh, we have patients start moving right away. And so movement of that hip right away after surgery is very important for that. And then more superficially for the scars like on the skin, uh, I find that once those scar- once those incisions have healed, it's really important to do some scar massage uh, right away and really desensitize those for patients that are more prone to that sort of thing, um, whether it be with um, just you know vitamin E oil or um, whatever type of um, topical ointment or, or oil you like to use. But I think the touch itself is what's really important and just reminding your your nervous system that this this particular touch should not be painful and I'm going to keep doing it until you recognize that that is not painful. And so that's probably the, the thing that I've found that's that's the best is really movement and and massage. Yeah, those are great tips. Thanks um, for sharing. Um, and there also, there's also different types of injections that have become popular for various orthopedic conditions and injuries. For example, some practitioners use steroids, um, although those, um, you know, there's some kind of risks associated with this, particularly for some, it seems like some subset of the population are maybe more sensitive to them. While some use regenerative medicine like prolotherapy and platelet-rich plasma therapy, um, can you give us kind of an overview to your approach to using injections or your view on the role of these kind of injectables for, for different orthopedic issues? Yeah. So for uh, for kind of the, the hip in particular, since we were talking about it, um, typically, and it, this kind of goes for most joints really, is typically we start, if I have a patient that's younger that has really obviously good cartilage um, based on kind of their x-rays and their joint space. I, I try to stay away from uh, steroid injections if I can. Um, and so one of the things that we use for kind of diagnosing hip pain um, as an intraarticular source of pain is we use a, a local anesthetic, uh, short acting like lidocaine or um, uh, marcaine, bupivacaine, just because the, we know that the steroid can have detrimental effects on the cartilage. So um, sometimes we'll just use a local anesthetic and see how the patient responds to that. If all of their pain disappears for even just a few minutes, you know, 10 minutes or so, um, this is the length of time that that local anesthetic is working, then we know that that's the source of their pain and we can kind of um, target that. And if there's a patient that I have that is really kind of either averse to surgery or is not, um, is just really having a lot of pain that they need to, to keep controlled and so they can participate in physical therapy to help get them better, um, then I will um, a lot of times use a, um, a steroid injection into the joint itself. Uh, if it's a, if it's, if I think it's more of a musculotendinous sort of issue, so like abductor uh, or gluteal tendonitis or hamstring, proximal hamstring tendonitis, I'll use Toradol um, as a, an injection and I'll actually inject it into that area. Um, Toradol can be used as an intramuscular uh, injection to go systemically, but I'll use it um, under ultrasound guidance and direct it directly into the, the area of tendinopathy to help with the inflammation um, to prevent the, the negative effects that you can get with steroid into the tendons um, because steroid can be detrimental to the tendinous tissue and cause, cause them to degrade uh, much quicker. And then um, I don't have personally a lot of experience with uh, prolotherapy. I've read a little bit about it. Um, I don't 
I have um, a lot of great literature on it. Um, so, I, you know, I, ha I know that it works for some people and I don't do it myself, but um, it's definitely not something I would necessarily dissuade my patients from doing. Um, it's, it's just one of those other tools that we have in our our, um, our toolbox to help patients. But the platelet-rich plasma I will um, often use after I've confirmed that their source of pain is wherever it is. So typically I'll use, what, like I mentioned before, either a local anesthetic or a steroid or the Toradol to kind of identify, is this the source of pain? And then if that is, and the patient's interested in doing PRP, um, I certainly, um, I, I find that that's, that can be very helpful, especially in tendinopathies. We used it a lot in our athletes for, for hamstring, um, strains and, uh, and they seem to work really well for, for those, but, um, the platelet rich plasma obviously is not covered by insurance. And so it's, it's quite expensive. So I kind of keep that as a, an option once I know where the source of pain is, so I can really direct it and make the most of it. Yeah, that was a wonderful overview. And um, just to kind of touch back on two things you said, I think um, the platelet-rich plasma, it, it's so interesting and it seems very promising from what I've read, but like with almost everything when it comes to hypermobility, it's really an area where we really desperately need some research. Um, mm -hmm. But the approach really stands to reason, um, you know, again, with what layperson's knowledge I have that you know, using your own body's platelets, the, the kind of building blocks of this tissue and putting them, you know, right where you're having a point of weakness. Um, it, it makes sense. It sort of checks out. But like you said, very expensive and not covered by insurance. And so, you know, hopefully with more direction and interest being taken in hypermobility and, you know, more patients kind of inquiring into these things, hopefully we'll get more research and if it kind of confirms the promising findings that a lot of people have, you know, experienced and, you know, what a lot of practitioners report, you know, hopefully down the road, eventually that's something that um, would be a covered option for people. Yeah, well. definitely. I mean, as I think as physicians, a lot of us would really like to see it covered because we, I think it, it's definitely very beneficial, but there's also a lot of subtleties to how we prepare the PRP. So we use different um, spin techniques on the, on the blood to, um, to get different ratios of kind of anti-inflammatory versus inflammatory mediators that are in the plasma. And, you know, if we're injecting something into the joint, we don't, we want more anti-inflammatory sort of things because the last thing we want to do is get really the joint angry and, and cause degradation to the cartilage. But in mm -hmm. situations where we have chronic tendinitis or tendinopathies, we want something that's more pro-inflammatory that helps to bring in kind of the um, inflammation response to incite healing. And so we have, that's kind of part of the problem with um, studying PRP is just all these different um, essentially configurations you can have of it. And plus the specimen that you take them from is very important as well. You know, how, how good has your uh, nutrition been? How it is really kind of dependent and gives uh, the PRP, you know, maybe better or worse qualities to it as well. So um, that's also something that that's a, a variable in studying the use and effectiveness of PRP. Those are some great um, things to point out. And, and thank you for making those comments because I, I didn't even realize that difference between separating out to look for the pro-inflammatory versus anti-inflammatory and that they could each be used in different contexts. And it's just, again, highlights um, the immense complexity of this area. And then, you know, then the approaches to treatment, you know, really getting that 
diagnosis as accurate as possible and then going the route that's going to help. And then again, just hopefully there's um, more research. But like you said, it's even difficult to do this research in a methodical way because, you know, even the process of getting the diagnosis of what exactly is going yeah. on is a challenge. So it's like, again, chicken and egg. It's like, what do we have to figure out, you know, first to get there? And, um, and, and just uh, to touch back on something you said a moment earlier, um, I'm glad that you mentioned that, you know, steroids can have that detrimental effect on um, cartilage, because I think that's something that's coming more to light. Like I've seen more discussion of that recently. And yet for so long, they've been such a mainstay of pain treatment. And it seems, you know, particularly for hypermobile patients to be, um, you know, aware of that potential cost benefit trade-off that if you're already a little bit, um, you know, missing or lacking in connective tissue, um, you know, especially like the repeated or, you know, constant injections of steroids could be weakening that tissue. Yes. So then is it time to consider another avenue or, you know, kind of step back and, and reassess, you know, with exactly your medical yeah. team, you know, as appropriate. Um, but yeah, incredibly complex to say the least. <laughs> um, so you also perform open gluteus medius repairs. Um, can you explain your approach to treating these type of tears and when surgery might be indicated for something like that? Yeah. So um, a lot of times when we see the glute medius repairs uh, or excuse me, tears or strains or um, kind of partial tears uh, that a lot of times we can get them better with uh, non-surgical means. And so, again, this is an area where I would use Toradol to ensure that this is the the diagnosis and then potentially try PRP if the patient's willing um, and really a lot of therapy. So typically I I try and get the patient into six to eight weeks of therapy and see if they're improving. As long as they're improving, we keep going that path. But um, if they do have a, um, a full tear of the the glute med uh, it is beneficial uh, for the patient and especially in their gait and their strength um, to repair them and i do um, typically when they're full thickness uh, tears i will do it open and it's it's kind of like fixing a rotator cuff and a shoulder um, but um, that's kind of what the glutes are for the hip and uh, uh, that's so that's really kind of more indicated in kind of a full rupture. And then those partial ruptures that uh, just aren't amenable to um, non-operative treatment options, including the anti-inflammatories and physical therapy and injections. Interesting. And again, so much complexity in this area, so much. (laughs) Um, And then also along the same lines, um, you also perform hamstring repairs uh, what are the symptoms of a, a damaged or a torn hamstring and, you know, when and what kind of surgery might be indicated in that case? Yeah, these also kind of have um, two modes. They either kind of come on very slowly and there's this chronic tendinosis that happens and then there's an ultimate rupture and sometimes they're just a traumatic rupture. I've seen both of them um, very recently, in fact. And um, so um, typically, so in a traumatic um accident, you'll, you'll, a lot of patients will say that they felt a pop in their butt and, and then they'll get a, a, 
a lot of bruising down the back of the leg. Uh, sometimes you'll even notice, they'll even notice a defect if they're thin enough uh, in kind of where the, that tendon has retracted. Um, but in those chronic cases, the patients will have a hard time sitting. Um, they'll just have pain sitting. A lot of them will be sitting crooked um, just to put the, keep the weight off of that side. And that can cause some lower back issues um, in patients as well. And so it's my my approach to kind of those more chronic um, tendinopathies is, is very similar to the glute need is to try that the anti-inflammatory physical therapy and then the toradol injections, potentially PRP, which I think is a really good um, option for those partial hamstring tears to get them better. And then, um, you know, recently had a patient who's been dealing with it for a long time and he finally, it finally ruptured on him and he was like, okay, fine, I'll let you fix them. But even in patients that have chronic partial tears, it's reasonable if they're not getting better with other means to, to go in there, complete the tear and, and reattach it. And so that's, that's kind of the approach to those hamstrings. Yeah. And that's fascinating. And I'm glad you highlighted on the fact that these kind of tears can happen traumatically, like a sort of all rupture all at once, or they can be this kind of chronically developed um, issue because um, you know, I've heard of kind of both instances and it certainly stands to reason in the hypermobile population that you'd have both of those events, but they might be experienced in very different ways. And so yeah. Um, yet again, just highlights the importance of, you know, trying to find a specialist, you know, as much as possible, who's at least kind of generally aware of the kind of different paths of hypermobility and these things that can happen because um, it's potentially a different um, treatment approach, depending on how your injury exactly was incurred. Yeah. Definitely. And I think that the hypermobile population is probably more prone to the tendinopathies than really the, the traumatic kind of tendon ruptures and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's really important. And especially in the hypermobile population, I think it's important to really, really try and uh, proceed with non-operative treatment options for the most part, just because of the, the potential complications and, and um, scarring issues and stuff that they can have with the, the connective tissue issues they have. That's a great point to make too. Again, this like stitch in time saves nine kind of approach. Yeah. That, like, um, and it's something that doesn't get highlighted a, a whole lot that, um, you know, I, I've certainly in talking to a lot of members of the hypermobile community, Um, And even just kind of thinking back on my own experience, it does seem like some of us, you know, maybe especially confounded by sort of the mast cell activation, overactive amounts of tryptase or, you know, whatever else is going on that, you know, we may not heal on the typical timeline for someone that doesn't have a, a connective tissue um, disorder. So I know that's been tough for me when I've heard, okay, in this much time, you should feel this much better. And that that's, you know, kind of a, uh, a good gauge maybe for the general population, but can be really, you know, frustrating and disappointing when it's like, okay, you know, that much time has gone by, like, it's not quite better yet. What's going on? And yeah, so that the idea that we can be, you know, on a little bit of a, a longer timeline sometimes, and, and again, whatever we can do to avoid surgery, you know, is, um, you know, preferable, but obviously sometimes it is necessary. Unavoidable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so you also address issues related to the shoulder joint, another, you know, really common area of 
dysfunction and pain um, in the hypermobile population. Can you give us a little bit of an overview about how the shoulder should work or kind of ideally is designed to work and then the common types of issues that you see in hypermobile patients when it comes to shoulders? Yeah, so the shoulder and the, the hip are they're very similar in certain aspects, but the shoulder is a ball and socket joint as well. However, the socket is much more shallow and the, the shoulder is really kind of held together mostly by the um, the soft tissues. So in uh, so this, I think, is probably a big um, issue in a lot of hypermobile patients where they can, uh, on command, kind of dislocate their shoulders and they don't really have uh, you know, necessarily a lot of pain with it. So that's kind of the biggest thing is really the instability in the shoulder that you get with hypermobile patients because of the lax tissues that they have. And I, there is some, you know, there's a the thought that because of those lax tissues, even if they do dislocate, they may have less kind of trauma to the kind of articular surfaces. However, of course, those soft tissues are getting beat up every time that shoulder dislocates, whether it's out the front or the back. And so seeing um, those patients uh, in clinic, I again, try and get them better with, uh, with therapy, but often uh, they need a, a a good tightening um, surgery to get that uh, shoulder more stable for them. And it's, it, it's important to note patients before they go into surgery with their hypermobile, because that kind of changes your, your guidance on what, what you're going to do for them um, as far as um, the technique you're going to use on them. Absolutely. And, um, and that just makes me wonder um, when it comes to the shoulder, are there ways for someone who's thinking, someone out there was thinking, oh, my shoulder's really unstable and has a lot of pain to know whether there's sort of a tear of the cartilage involved. Like I've heard of the, is it the Faber test, the flexion, abduction, extension and rotation for the hips to kind of see if, you know, cause the hip can like uh -huh. plunk out and make this, it, it can be noisier, yeah. but the shoulder, you know, as someone who's had um, tears in both hips and left shoulder, the shoulder was a lot less noticeable. Like the pain wasn't in the shoulder itself. It was radiating into the back and up the yeah. neck and that wasn't making that dramatic like kruk sound. So yeah. it is like there, if someone is out there thinking, oh, I, you know, my shoulders hurt, like things that are more suggestive of a connective tissue injury versus like a muscle issue or, or something else. Um, you know, it's a good question. So um, it, it's really um, the, if you're having an issue kind of say with like the labrum or cartilage, it's usually a little bit more uh, pinpoint and a little deeper in the um, shoulder glenohumeral joint area. When it's muscular, it's a little bit more diffuse and often kind of in the shoulders or in the back neck area. Um, and again, you know, issues or pinching of the nerve in, in the neck can cause, cause shoulder pain, but anything that's kind of radiating down, especially if it goes past the elbow is usually something other than the shoulder joint itself. But there are certain tests that we can do. We call um, the O'Brien test that we can um, test kind of the posterior labrum. We call it a, a slap tear and um, where you have pain during that test can really help us um, in identifying, you know, what's going on. And I, um, Imagine if I were to do that on you, for instance, um, you would have pain like in the back of your shoulder um, versus you know, somebody who just has some biceps tendonitis will have the pain more sore in the front of their shoulder. Interesting. Yeah, that's a great um, overview. And um, I guess 
kind of highlighting another issue or another place where I know you um, do work and another tricky joint um, is the knee. Um, what types of issues do you see when it comes to the knee in, in hypermobile individuals in particular? Um, and kind of what are the options for treatment when it comes to that joint? Yeah, so for hypermobile patients, a big thing is patella dislocation. So most commonly I see uh, patella dislocations in them. And some of it has to do, obviously, and this is another kind of situation where you can end up with a kind of a perfect storm of, of multiple different areas, one being um, bony morphology, you know, having a shallow a groove where the patella uh, sits, having a patella that sits high, and then having the lax ligaments can all kind of contribute to the um, possibility of a, a patella dislocation. And they can be tricky in hypermobile patients because we know that if you've had one patella dislocation in a patient that's hypermobile and has some other factors like what we consider patella alta and maybe some trochlear dysplasia, we know that they're much more prone to redislocation. And so we um, consider being a little bit more aggressive with surgery on them. But um, of course, uh, mainstay uh, for patellar kind of maltracking or, or just patients that have patella femoral pain um, is physical therapy. Other, you know, we don't have a great um, kind of arthroscopic procedure necessarily for treating patellofemoral pain, which I see a lot of in patients, especially women in, in hypermobile uh, individuals where their patellas just don't sit properly. And so they're getting a lot of extra wear and tear on, on, um, you know, a particular side of that patella and in the trochlea that causes pain. And again, that's where we kind of weigh the pros and cons of doing injections. And I, I just really harp on getting into therapy and getting those legs strong and, and working with the therapist that can really kind of analyze your mechanics and see what they can do to, to address them and, and get them properly aligned. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, so let's let's switch gears a little bit and talk about some of your research. Um, you worked on a study looking at the interrater and intrarater reliability of the Byton scoring system. Um, can you give us a brief overview of the work that went into your paper and what your key findings were? Yes. So I have uh, to give a lot of credit to. Um, <laughs> Lauren Bockhorn, she was a med student at the time when we uh, worked on this, but uh, what we did was a systematic review. Uh, we found all the uh, papers that had uh, looked at uh, the reliability of the bite score, um, whether interrater or intrarater. And essentially what we found was that the, it's, a, it's a good it's a good scoring system. So, so they, we found substantial to excellent uh, inter and intra rater uh, reliability with this scoring system. So, and it didn't seem to matter, you know, if the patient, if the the person doing the test was a healthcare professional or not, as long as they had some, you know, they had the criteria in front of them, they were able to identify the score reliably. Interesting. And hopefully there'll be more kind of awareness out there. So more people are aware of the Byton scoring system and 
um, you know, going to that when they have patients with chronic pain or fibromyalgia. I know there's some controversy around it. You know, there's a lot of people that suggest that more joints should be included or different joints. Um, and it'll be kind of interesting to see how all of that shakes out again, hopefully right. with some more research. Down the, down the <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think when it was initially, you know, created, there was definitely a much, much narrower, um, knowledge of it. And so, um, you know, changing that score, I don't know if it's necessarily the answer, but maybe creating different scoring systems could be potentially better. Yeah. Sure. And as we get more research, you know, it, it may, may, you know, come out that different types of hypermobility uh, manifest differently in terms of different sets of joints. And so maybe that's sort of the the different subsets because the hype right right now, the hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos group is kind of the the catch-all for people whose genes haven't been found yet, which leads to my next question about, um, you've actually looked at this issue and you've looked at anatomical variances and genetics as they relate to dancers. um, And you published an absolutely fascinating study on different genes um, related to connective tissue and their prevalence in ballet dancers um, in the American Journal of Sports Medicine. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how that project came about and what your findings were? Yeah, so this is a, a project that uh, I got really passionate about as a, an intern uh, during residency uh, in Houston. And I uh, had a task of, uh, I knew I wanted to do some research uh, with the with the ballet, and I was really interested in the hypermobility and how it related to dancers. And so um, I happened to be in the right place at the right time, and I had a um, a uh, a attending that had the uh, funds for me to to do something like this and had you know the interest and uh, saw the you know potential benefits of doing it uh, even as an orthopedic surgeon not a geneticist uh, by any means uh, but just having the interest and knowing you know we as um, orthopedic surgeons do recognize certain um genetic variants um, in certain things like Marfan syndrome and, and uh, osteogenesis imperfecto. We discuss it more kind of on our pediatric rotations, our pediatric orthopedic uh, rotations, but um, it certainly um, has uh, value in, in in adults as well. And it a lot of it connected to hypermobility. The, all of these kind of connective tissue um, genes have an element of hypermobility to them. And so um, knowing that dancers were more prone to that hypermobility, I kind of gathered all of the genes that had that as a, as a phenotype and, and just got some, some blood from the dancers and, and went to see, you know, what, did they have any variants in these um, different genes that we know are associated with connective tissue disorders to kind of see if, are they more prone to these connective tissue disorders? Well, none of them really had a kind of um, what we consider a disease causing variant, but they all, we did end up finding some um, unusual variants or variants that hadn't been found before. And we found a relatively high prevalence of variants in these genes in this population. So it just goes to show the complexity and how little really we know about, you know, how these genes affect us down the line in in our soft tissues and our connective tissues and, and how they affect hypermobility. It just goes to, to show you that hypermobility has so many facets and and there's not one gene that that 
that determines it. It's it's multiple genes and variations of those genes, and probably you know if you have more of this one and less of that one, there's a combination there that can um, cause hypermobility and vice versa. So it's um, it was it was really fun to 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 see the outcome of this study, and I was very um, blessed to be able to do it as an orthopedic resident uh, to do a genetic study. So. Absolutely. And kudos to you for, you know, taking that initiative and, and doing that because it really was fascinating. And I think if I remember right, there were like 11 different genes found, something like that, quite a few. And um, that it was like 88% of the dancers that you had brought into the study had one of those genes, yeah. um, which is a really high prevalence and so smart to go to a hypermobile population and, you know, see what's going on there. Um, it's kind of going right to the source of, okay, what's going on here. And so I encourage the listeners to go and check out the paper. It's really fascinating. Um, and I really hope that there'll be additional research, you know, into those different genes to kind of see, you know, like you said, is there a relationship between this one and that one, or, you know, what, what's kind of the bigger picture, but it's, it's such a great, um, piece of work. And, you know, we'll, we'll link that in the episode description to anyone who wants to, to read more about that very um, important contribution. Appreciate it. Um, yeah, so that's that's all I have for today. Um, thank you so very much, Dr. Vera, for joining us today, and thank you for your contributions to hypermobility research, and you know for taking such an interest in in this population because um, these issues, as we've gone over time and time again, are just so incredibly complex, and a lot of people shy away from that complexity. And so it's incredibly impressive how much you've been able to publish and investigate and learn um, in, in a relatively short period of time. I appreciate it. It's, it's been, it's been very intriguing and, and gratifying for myself. So um, thank you again for having me. I really appreciate it. Of course. Thanks. That's all for this episode of the Hypermobility Happy Hour. As always, feel free to reach out to us at hypermobilityhappyhour at gmail.com with any questions, feedback, suggestions for future episodes or topics. Um, And thanks for joining us. See you next time. Bye.